Welcome to episode 167. Today we talk about antisocial language in teaching. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. For the longest time, I stayed clear away from politicizing our field. I avoided any discussion related to racial linguistics. This was until someone pointed out that practices such as English-only policies, accent reduction, segregating students in mostly pull-out classes on separate campuses, and finger-wagging at slang were problematic to students and their cultures, in addition to academic achievement. In short, colonization is still alive in our practice. The reality is that we mostly teach BIPOC students, and yet most of the teachers are not BIPOC. Dr. Justin Gerald will help us reflect on how colonization might still be present in our practices and how do we address that. Now, on to today's podcast. I'm so honored to have Dr. Justin Gerald on the podcast. I have seen his tweets. People have talked about his book. And when I saw it, I was like, oh my goodness, I need to have, have you on to talk about your anti-social language teaching book, English and the Pervasive Pathology of Whiteness. Dr. Gerald, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. It's um it's a fun topic to talk about. For some. Yeah, for some. It's fun for me to talk about, <laughs> yeah. you know, not for everybody. <laughs> the message can be hard at times, but it's the yet the message must be said and shared. Right? So that's why I'm having you on the podcast. Can you briefly tell us about how you spend your days, where you spend your days and your proudest professional achievement? Well, going backwards is probably the book, right, is the professional achievement. So we'll get into that. Um, but, you know, I have an almost three-year-old. I actually not quite sure when this comes out. He might be three by the time it comes out because his birthday is in a few weeks. Um, but uh, so that's a lot of my energy. <laughs> but uh, during the day, my, my day job, I work as a um, training manager for a nonprofit. Uh, what? what the nonprofit does a lot of things. My job is to manage a few different training programs for um, housing developers of color. So in, I'm sure people know, there's a lot of gentrification that goes on in the United States, not just the United States, but that's where I am. And uh, what, what my nonprofit does is we try to support housing developers who are actually connected to their communities so that people from the outside don't come in and snatch up uh, parcels of land and, and, and develop things and make money off of the people in the communities. Now, we can have an entire philosophical debate about should people even be owning land in the first place, whatever, but in the world that we live in, if someone's gonna develop it, it should be the people from the community. So I run the training programs for that. I don't have any housing experience. I, I'm an educator, I have a doctorate in education. Um, and I got to this because I was doing curriculum development at a different place before this, and I just didn't like that other place. So now I do this. Um, and then, yeah, I, I run a lot 
Um, I write a lot, although I'm forcing myself to take a break so that when I start my next big project, which probably will be over the summer, I have so much energy built up that I can rush through it because I'm not very good at doing things slowly, as you can probably tell by the fact that I wrote the book in seven months. So <laughs> that's a sprint for, for writing books. What is your next project? Well, it's not confirmed yet. They didn't say yes yet. The proposal is under review by the same publisher that this one was. I'm not worried about them saying yes in the sense that actually my second idea is a little bit less off the wall than the one that we're talking about. Um, still language because the language publisher, but it's more, as we'll go into, this book that we're talking about is about the racism, whiteness, language, but the underlying thing about it is about diagnosis and disability, right? Whereas I want to bring that more front and center in the next one, talking about the connection between language and ability and intelligence and that sort of thing, because I'm really interested in that as a, a frontier that I don't believe has been explored all that effectively in books. Yeah, it's in some articles, but it's, it's, there's not, I don't look around the book that I want to write. I can't find. That's why I write things because I want to write what I can't find out there. You know, or that I haven't found. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but if I can't find it, then, you know. You were a teacher before. You have a doctorate now in education. Can you tell us a, a story that has really influenced your practice to this day? A teaching story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I started teaching in South Korea in 2008. Um, a lot of people do that sort of thing in the United States, of course. I. A big part of what inspired the book is my gradual realization that I was upholding ideologies I didn't really believe in. Um, and so I was a teacher for nine years, a, a traditional classroom teacher, I should say. I still work in education. I facilitate trainings. So I'm not not teaching, but I'm not a classroom teacher for in, in the same sense. But, you know, I think what I learned was I didn't know what I was doing when I got to South Korea. Didn't know what I was doing. They didn't train me. You know, I took a week long class to get a certain certification in New York. Um, and all that class did was teach me how to make lesson plans. Didn't teach me how to teach. Um, and I got the certificate and the only thing the certificate did was raise my salary by $200 a month. And so it paid for itself in a few months because it only cost $1,000. So I was like, all right. And then if you, as long as you stay more than five months, it paid for itself, right? But I didn't know anything. So I get there, I'm 21 years old, right? And they put me in front of 40 Korean kids and I'm just like 40 in a room at a time. And I'm just like, well, <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing, which is like, this is bad for the kids because they, they're not getting an inexperienced teacher. Every teacher is going to be inexperienced at some point. You know, the first time you teach, you're going to be inexperienced. But like truly, like not even just like an American teacher who goes to teach for America and they're inexperienced, but at least they have some training. And I'm not trying to say great things about Teach for America. But the point is, the point is, uh, I didn't know what I was doing. And my first year, I was just guessing. Ah, maybe they'll like this. Maybe they'll like this, right? And it took me a while to realize how much pressure is put on the kids in South Korea. And this is true of a lot of countries, but I can only speak for where I was. And I realized that they're getting really bad only grammar-based teaching, like the grammar translational method stuff um, in there. Because they have English class that's not me. I'm the like additional class, right? It took me a while to realize this. They had other English teachers who were Korean and obviously people from Korea can teach English very well, but they weren't allowed to teach well. Like these teachers were told, teach directly from the textbook, repeat after me type stuff, right? These kids are only getting good English teaching 
outside of there when they go into these expensive private school things, which they get after the school day. So they're in class until like 11 o'clock at these places and six days a week, all this stuff. And I realized like, I I should be working against that. I'm not going to tear down the Korean system because it's not unique to Korea. But what I mean is that like, I said, what these kids need is, 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 is something that they can really sink their teeth into as a project. So the project is not very interesting in the sense that I created this project that said like, if you're creating a country, what would you do? And I had them work in groups and they came up with like flags and like national languages and stuff. And I'm sure I was still upholding some ideologies that I wouldn't uphold right now. But it was the first time that the, the, the students in this realm of English, at least, I don't know about their other classes, had been given the opportunity to have some agency. And again, I'm not criticizing my colleagues who were forced to teach that way, right? I'm criticizing the, the government, which is learning from the American government. So this is certainly not me speaking down to Korea. But I realized in that project and how they responded to it and how much they got into it that like I did have a skill at connecting with students if I always assumed that they were extremely capable. Right. The assumption that I made after that point is that every student of any age is extremely capable. That doesn't mean there aren't things they can improve. Why are you there? But I always assume capability. And that, that means that there are students who have been browbeaten intellectually into believing that they're not capable. So sometimes when you assume they're capable, they'll tell you, no, I'm not. And then you then you're like, how do I convince this adult that they know more than they realize? Uh, but it just sort of became my philosophy as an educator going forward. And it always became a problem because I came back to New York eventually. And there were a lot of schools that didn't treat, and I started teaching adults because I was teaching high school in South Korea. Um, they, they treated their adults like they didn't know anything. And I realized how much of a, a gap that was between what I was trying to do and what they needed. So I carry that with me. I still do that now in my classes that again, are not language classes, but they are like housing development facilitation classes. But the point is, I assume that these folks know a lot and if they don't, I help them. But you know, that's, 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 uh, that's how I got to this point. So my heart is like pitter pattering right now in admiration because in the field, we're talking about assets-based instruction, where we're talking about you said it best. You said, when I work with students, I assume that they're capable. And from that reference, from that point of view, I create lessons, I create an experience where they are capable. And so you just spoke to all the teachers who of multilingual students who are listening to now. To now. You're saying, yes, this is the approach, this is the way the field is moving towards instead of what it was before. This is a good time to actually talk about your book. Um, Every every book has a seed. What was the seed for this book? When I got to my doctoral program, um, they make you at you know what do you want to research? They ask you right to get in, and then they ask you again when you get there. And because I had spent nine years as a language teacher, although I was not a language teacher at that time, at that time when I applied, I was only one year removed from being a language teacher, right? Because I stopped do, the official language teaching thing stopped in early 2017, and I was applying to school in early 2018. So it was very fresh. And I said, well, what's a problem? Because I was working like a community language program, like a nonprofit, a different type of nonprofit than I work at now. But like, they, these were like free classes for adults in the community. Classes like that, they don't have great attendance. And I said, 
well, maybe I'm thinking this is very cynical, not the going to school, but the what I was going to study part. I said, maybe I can be the person who figures out the attendance thing at these free schools. Like maybe I can, maybe there's something people haven't found yet that would increase attendance at these schools. So I started looking at the research in my first semester and there's very little research on this particular phenomenon. Not, attendance in general at like community colleges, whatever has a lot of data, but the specific context of these like free or extremely low cost community education places, which is a lot of the places adults learn English in the United States, right? Um, the attendance is always bad. What is the average attendance? Hard to find because these places don't keep great records, right? <clears throat> and then <clears throat> even harder to find is, okay, people left the program. Why did they leave? Well, if they left, it's hard to find them to ask why they left. <laughs> and then this is true of lots of things where if someone's not there, how, why did they leave? They're not going to tell you they're gone. Um, but one place managed to do a study that this was a big enough community center that had would have hundreds of students every year, right? And this place, you know, partnered with them or these researchers partnered with them to find out why these people had left. And they actually tracked down a certain number of people who had left. And these people gave answers that I was not expecting because I'm assuming from my own experience when I used to run one of those programs, oh, they had a childcare issue. Oh, they got sick. Oh, they moved. Right now, that was true of some people, but I also realized the people who had that issue, they usually told me, right? Like, they're like, I'm sorry, I want to come to class, but I can't get a sitter, right? They didn't usually just not say anything, right? Um, and it turned out in this one study, and it's only one study, but I was curious after reading it that um, it was actually because the, the teachers were racist. <laughs> like, this is not what they said in so many words, but what it was was a more or less all white teaching staff and administration and a more or less all students of color, which in this particular case was like Somalia, but it could have been a lot of places. And they were not seen, this is exactly what we were talking about. They were not seen as if they knew what they were talking about. It, like the students would say, I know this, or I don't know this. And the teachers would just ignore it and just teach whatever they wanted to. And that was interesting to me. So I started asking people questions about this and they did not want to talk about it. And then that became my research. The fact that the people I knew didn't want to talk about it. And then just by chance, this was 2019, a year, I, you know, I had some experiences that made me realize even more how much people didn't want to talk about the fact that they got mad and I wasn't even saying it. I didn't even use the word racist. I didn't say the word white when people would just get upset. And I said, well, then I might as well be direct about it. If they're going to be upset, if I am only implying stuff, then I might as well just say it. And so I started thinking about that and writing about it. And then just by chance, one of my articles got very popular right around, you know, George Floyd and everything, which had, it had nothing to do with that, but that's just when it was released. And because of that, I gave a bunch of talks and the publisher approached me and then I wrote the book, so. Can you actually go back and paint to paint a picture of us? Like what was the racist, um, what was the racism this, that the teachers, the students experienced? Right. So I think people still think, well, not everybody, but too many people still think that racism is just like people saying slurs and violence and stuff like that. And obviously that's a problem and I'm not pretending that that doesn't exist, um, but it's a very small subset of what racism is. You know, I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but like if that's all that racism was, 
he would be pretty easy to fight because <laughs> it's just like it's just like it's you know um if it was just if there was no racism except sometimes people said slurs then those people just get in trouble and that's the end of it right the real problem is the power differential the like i said the assumption of a lack of intelligence which is why i brought that up in the book and why i want to focus on that going forward in some ways and just completely dismissing what these students believed and said. And that's what I started to see as a problem because when I started to get this resistance before I even did anything, the the things people would say to me were things like, well, race is a construct. I'm like, yeah, but it was constructed. <laughs> so, so we got to deal with it. Um, and also people said things like, well, you know, teachers are really hardworking. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know what that why that would mean that racism. So I just started to realize that people didn't understand all the ways that racism manifested, you know, because it's a power differential. It's not it could it could be other aspects of oppression too, classism, ableism, and all that stuff. But like it's really it's the power differential and the efforts people go through to maintain that power differential. Because to me, the power differential is bad, but if it wasn't so violently defended right, then it wouldn't be as big of a deal. There's so many ways that racism could be not as big of a deal, but they they put a lot of money and time into upholding it as it is. So I uh, the racism is, is very rarely people saying slurs, you know, in terms of the language teaching field, right? Uh, I'm sure there are people like that, but uh, that's not really what I'm talking about. What I'm really talking about, it goes to what I said about my, you know, the asset-based teaching is the assumption that the students don't know anything and the fact that it's like their culture or the fact that um, the way that they communicate is wrong or bad, right? All of those things tied together and we can talk about racial linguistics and all that. Like, it's not just that the students don't know anything is the assumption. It's which students are presumed to know less, right? It's not a coincidence which students we assume can't improve or whatever, right? Um, and everyone who doesn't look a certain way or sound a certain way is just presumed to be not in control of their own communication. Let's just put it that way. And uh, I really wanted to show how the idealization of whiteness and other forms of identity, I'm, I'm using whiteness as the word mostly so that people can't get away from it. Uh, but like, it's not just whiteness, <laughs> but like capitalism and colonialism and all that stuff too. But like, if I, I, I've thought a few times about being subtler, right? I've thought about that because um, even in 2018 and 19, I probably would have been subtler if I'd written this book. Uh, but after 2020, when I had all my friends asking me like what to do, I was like, I guess I just have to tell them the truth. Uh, <laughs> and I said to myself at various points, like maybe it makes more sense to go in undercover and say something like I'm talking about diversity and then really bring in the stuff. But then I realized like, no, this isn't going to work with people who aren't ready for it. Like this isn't, I'm not preaching to the, like the enemies, right? Because there are a few of those. When you read the book, you see what some of the things people say to me on the internet, but that's not who I care about, right? I care about, there's people who already agree with me, who just need some extra fuel. I'm writing for them. And then there's people who are curious. They're not really sure they could go either way. I'm speaking to them. 
like that to me the the people in the middle and i don't mean middle politically but the in, in the middle are really the audience i want to speak to i'm not trying to ignore the people who already agree with me i just i feel like the people who already agree with me are going to read it and be like yay good job but like the the big changes that need to happen are the people in the middle who frankly will go along with whatever right they they just want to go along to get along and i understand sometimes that like the the precarity of the field you don't really have a choice but like if the field were to change its policies and its practices they would just go along and the field would get better uh and then the handful of enemies simply need and i don't like to say enemies but i don't know what else to call them uh they will have less power and it just won't matter and they can either leave the field or they can go along with it right right now what they're going along with is the ideologies that are harmful so, so that their stuff seems like it's being supported by the field. Um, and it is. So, and the field would prefer that they don't say, do the, because there's, like I said, there's a small number of people who do the stuff that people think racism is. Right? Those people, the field doesn't like them doing that because it allows the field, it's harder for the field to pretend it's not racist when people are doing like actual out and out bigoted stuff. So the field would prefer not to have those extremes and not to have people like us in it either, so that it, it just wants the people in the middle and the status quo to stay the same. And to me, the people who are upholding the status quo, maybe disconsciously, right, um, not super invested in the status quo, like they're more comfortable in the status quo because of their identities, but they're not like, it must stay this way, like some people. Uh, they're the people that I want to, I don't know, listen can you help us define antisocial language in teaching? It's funny. That title came because I had started to see the word antisocial thrown around a lot um, because in a lot of like true crime, you know, it was very big deal. 10, 15 years ago to start slapping sociopath on everybody, right? And sociopath, yeah, sociopath isn't actually a medical term. Like it's not, you can't be diagnosed as sociopath. That's not a thing. I mean, it's a colloquial thing, but it's not like you don't go to the doctor and say, well, you're a sociopath. That's not a thing, right? Um, broadly speaking, when people say sociopath, they mean like a lack of empathy, cruelty, you know, a whole bunch of, it's, 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 it's not a real thing, but it's a generally understood confluence of things that mostly mean the lack of empathy and so forth, which they say that sociopaths run hot and psychopaths run cold. Neither of these things are things when you go to the doctor, they're going to tell you, right? I'm not saying they don't exist because they, they, all this stuff is made up anyway, but like, it's not you're not going to get a diagnosis you're not going to get a diagnosis of sociopath but you can get diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder right so think of it this way i'm using the medical language on purpose because this is a it's it's a more official way of saying like sociopathic language teaching right but that's not a real thing and i'm using the medical language on purpose to trouble medicalization because we tend to use medicalization as a way not to have to deal with stuff so like this person is, you know, mentally unwell, but we use a clinical term and it seems legitimate, right? Um, so my point is people have started to use antisocial to refer to various groups they don't like. They're not 
it's not just what it says in the DSM and the, you know, diagnostic statistical manual, right? The people who are being called antisocial are anyone who does disruptive stuff, right? The time I heard it that really clicked for me was a Fox News report where they were talking about protesters as being antisocial, right? And I said, well, that's ridiculous. But then I looked at the actual symptoms of antisocial personality disorder, and they're so vague and subjective. And I said to myself, Honestly, based on this definition, they're not wrong in the way they use antisocial because the word could be applied to anyone that society doesn't like. And so I thought about that and I thought about that being an ableist thing to do to just use medical diagnoses to dismiss people. And then I thought about the connection between disability and racism because I was studying that connection um, and then I knew that there was a connection from racism to language because of all the stuff that's come out in the last 10 years of racial linguistics and all that. And so I decided to put the sort of race and language ideas together with uh, race and disability ideas and just sort of circle all the way around. And then the next time I'm going to go in the other direction with language and disability. So that's basically where it came from. It just means that the field is callous, corrupt and cruel. You're telling it as, it as it is. Can you tell us any examples of those? You know, the precarity of the field is a big part of the problem, right? And it's not an accident. It's not unique to the field, but like, like the, there's a lot of fields. But like, we all talk about the gig economy and all that. I mean, English teachers around the world have been gig workers for like decades. That's just kind of what they do, you know? Um, and I don't know what precarity is. Precarity, you know, the fact that so many people's jobs are not secure in the field, right? So when people don't have secure jobs, they can't fight injustice together because they got to worry about the paychecks, right? And the fact that the only people making making money in this field are like three people at the top, uh, to me, that's corrupt. Um, and then the cruelty is both to the members of the field who aren't white, um, because they are seen as not, as if they don't know what they're talking about and seen as though they're not legitimate stewards of the language, right? And not good, good models for people to listen to and learn from. And the cruelty is both the way those teachers are treated and the way the students are treated. Because like I said, that the, the way the whole, the cruelty is things like accent reduction, right? The fact that that exists as a, as, as a, a, a central tenet of the field and an extremely lucrative tenant of the field. Like it's one of the ways you can make guaranteed money is to do that sort of thing. And so the fact that uh, so much of the field's assumptions depend on creating and building on discomfort, right? You know, we have all these concepts in language teaching, things like, um, you know, the silent period, right? And um, we, I understand what they mean with the silent period. The concept of it to me is not necessarily a problem. Obviously, some people aren't going to talk immediately. But to me, if someone is, again, there are people who just don't talk much, period, right? That could be, that's not wrong. You know, it could be that person. But I'm just saying, like, to me, if I am learning a language and I'm not speaking, it's because I'm uncomfortable, <laughs> right? I'm not comfortable expressing myself in the language. And that's fine, but we just clock, chalk, chalk it up to some clinical thing. Like there's going to be a time at which this person's uncomfortable, and that's fine. And we don't say, here's how you can make them comfortable, 
We're just like, they're just going to be uncomfortable and we just need to keep going. You know, some people, you know, if someone's in your classroom and they're not talking, oh, that's a silent period. It's like, or maybe that person doesn't like you <laughs> because you treat them like they don't know anything, right? I don't want to talk to you. So, you know, things like that. And I, I, I'm being glib and dismissive of some things I learned in my master's program 12 years ago. And I'm not trying to be that way, but a lot of these assumptions in the field to me, the, the ideologies that the field is based on, that it still depends on. Because when you think about the fact that I could go get it, maybe less so now, but still generally go get a job in South Korea or Japan or China without having to do very much besides have a college degree, uh, you know, or people who are from China, Korea, Japan, come to the United States and they don't, you can't get a job. Um, despite the fact that they might've studied it for 10, 15, 20 years, right? It's, uh, it's a problem. So, you know, I think that the whole set of assumptions that the field has about who is a correct English speaker and what correct English is, and that's not just speaker because they're signing to, but you know what I mean, um, is it's really a way to sort people into hierarchies and um, stigmatize certain people. And it is just not a coincidence who those people who end up being stigmatized are. And who are those people that are being stigmatized? I mean, yeah. I mean, to me, I think if the farther you are away from a particular ideal of, generally speaking, white, able-bodied, not just male, because it depends on where you are. I'm not saying that there isn't plenty of misogyny. I'm just saying that, like, when I was in Korea, I was told by some of my female friends there that like they were even told that what the ideal for their classroom was was a white Canadian woman right <laughs> so you know depends on where you are as to what they prize but the point is there are they, they want certain things certain places it depends on where you are in Europe the American is not on the top it's the Brits right as far as what the accent they want people to have right so uh but the point is wherever people are it's never there's this assumed expertise that we have, and it's, uh, I don't really think it's justified. I remember I had, and this is not in the book, I was I went to a school on a field trip three and a half years ago. It was a Japanese school in the United States, right? Um, half the teachers were Japanese, half of them were American. This is fine, the class, some of the classes are in English like that. I don't have a problem with Americans teaching in an American school. I mean, you know, whatever. But uh, they had a, a clearly very dedicated I don't know if she was the principal or headmaster or whatever you want to call it, Japanese woman who was talking all about the different humanities of the students and so forth. And it was really interesting to talk to her about her philosophies and blah, blah, blah. But the parents, mostly like almost all Japanese parents who were like business people who sent them here or they lived here for some reason or whatever, were disappointed that the school was not getting as many people into American colleges, right? Because... You know, they're like, we spend all this money. We want our kids to go to the Harvards and the whatever, right? And uh, the solution the school had was to hire a British guy. <laughs> and so this woman who told us everything and they were all, she was expert and, you know, she really connected with the students. And then this guy comes in and he's just babbling on about nothing, but he's technically the one making the academic decisions at this school now, right? And this is because these parents are probably not the best judges of people's like necessary English acumen or teaching. And I'm not trying to criticize the parents, but what they see is we need to get a white guy 
So these people have a better chance of getting in. The problem is the school's not letting them in. Not the fact that the white guy's not there. We're always trying to fix the wrong thing. We're always trying to fix the people learning the language. But it's the people who are perceiving the language who are the problem. And it's also just a waste of money and time and we're going to say, well, money doesn't matter. Money is a real thing, obviously. And just in the sense that time is money. And it takes so much longer to try to push people's English level to a point where theoretically the society will accept them better, even though that's a societal issue, right? And it takes so much less time if someone is interested for them to learn how to understand different accents. Like it doesn't take long. You know, like like literally there's research on this and I see they're doing it at University of Oregon. Like if you are someone who wants to come in and just sit and listen to learn to differentiate between different accents, it takes like a weekend. You know, it's not the same as being able to teach. I'm just talking about understanding, you know, and if everybody who was going to work with people from different countries sat down for a weekend and learned to differentiate, now, I'm not saying the English classes wouldn't exist, but then the goal wouldn't be try to get the, the society to care about you. Like if the society doesn't want to care about you, it's not going to, you know, so. You, you talked about the medicalization of students by finger pointing, by labeling students, we blame them. And then well, you said it before, you said, we have to stop blaming the person learning the language and we have to address the people perceiving the student. That's really like the crux of it. Yeah, I think my recommendations at the end of the book, which I don't want to give all away so that people will read it, but broadly speaking, I can summarize some of them is that like, we got to stop what we just talked about. We got to stop uh, talking about what's wrong with all these students. You know, um, I remember at jobs I've had, we we used to do a needs analysis, which in itself is not bad, right? What do people need is not bad, but the way it's conducted is always like identify the struggles and focus on the struggles, right? You can do that sort of thing in a positive way, right? Because right now, for example, with the classes I work on, which aren't language classes, but it certainly could be done the same way, is we ask the students, what do you want to learn more about? Right? And then like you figure out how to address that, you know? But you come in with this sort of one size fits all curriculum where you just identify what people are quote unquote bad at, and then you teach that to them so that they do better on a test that assesses that. And then you say, my job is done. And then they go out and they try to get a job and they still can't because the people don't understand them or quote unquote, don't understand them. Right. And, you know, you are saying, look, I did what I did. You know, I improved your ability to understand the difference between phrasal verbs. Uh, and, you know, we haven't given that if even ignoring the fact that it may not be a great thing for this to be attached to jobs and whatever, if that's your goal, you're not even succeeding at that. <laughs> you know, because the people who are going to, if someone was inclined to hire someone who quote unquote sounded different or whatever, then they're going to be inclined to hire them anyway. Right. Those people who don't care about that sort of thing and genuine and like welcome it. Like, like at my job, we have plenty of people in a lot of different places. We see it as a bonus bonus. Um, 
but the people who see it as a detriment, they might hire you and hire could be exchanged for let you into school or any other thing, right? They might hire you or admit you, but it's this conditional acceptance, right? Because it's not usually impossible for someone with a different accent to get a job, right? But it's a conditional acceptance. And then it's hard to stay in the job. And then they say, well, we tried when the person quits. I had a colleague who was Korean. This is in New York, though. Um, and we worked at a senior center. And she had an MPA, I think, or an MPP, you know, she had, a, she was qualified, she was credentialed, right? And uh, whenever something the senior citizens didn't like happened, they would say, yeah, but she doesn't even speak English, which like was not true. And also had nothing to do with what they may or may not have liked. What it really happened was she was telling them no, and they didn't like that. But they used that as an excuse to discredit her intelligence, her competence or whatever, because she, you know, she's from Korea and she sounded like she's from Korea. So, you know. So you just really uh, explained clearly what the, what the disorder is. Let's talk, let's talk about the symptoms before we end the podcast to talk about the treatment. Yeah, I kind of just talked about the treatment too, but uh, the symptoms there's, so the antisocial personality disorder has seven symptoms in the DSM. So I wrote seven chapters, each one matching up with one of the symptoms, right? I actually don't remember what they all are off the top of my head, but like the clinical, the clinical language, I mean, I, I know what I said about language teaching, but I, I don't remember exactly because they're so vague. It's things like prone to deceit, which is just like, um, or like it's things like not being able to hold down a job is like a symptom, right? What they're saying is that the people with this disorder can't keep it together well enough to be hired. That's what they're saying. But the language of not being able to keep down a job, you know who in the world has trouble getting jobs, right? So it's very easy if it's with any of these things, if there's seven symptoms, you're supposed to have five to be diagnosed, right? So, but you could easily just like, well, has had trouble getting a job, right? I have friends who've had trouble getting jobs, you know? Uh, and then it's, and then it says, pro, you know, things are being prone to criminal behavior. So it's things like that. Anyway, the first thing I put in there, and again, I'm not going to say what all seven are because I want people to read it. The first thing is specifically about deceit and criminality and so forth as a symptom. And, uh, I talked about the whole native speaker teacher thing, right? But I didn't say what I think people think I would say, which is just like, obviously that's bad, but the the fraud is not that the people are hired based on being quote unquote native speakers, which I've written in other chapters and articles that are out there about how that's a problem. But to me, because to me, the, the symptom is really deceit and fraud, like fraud, right? Like that's, that's a crime. Uh, to me, the deceit is actually the concept of being native in the first place. Like the fact that we are told that we are experts based on our identity, is the fraud of the industry, right? If I accept a job based on, on the fact that I'm told I'm a native speaker, I'm not, that's not on my part, right? I'm told you're a native speaker, you're qualified. Now, at a certain age, you should be aware of that. And I was an adult and we should all be aware of the fact that that by itself isn't it's a, a large qualification, but I was 21 and whatever, I wanna make excuse about myself. But the very fact that your identity is part of your qualifications, right? And as we say, as we say, as one uh, writer says here, uh, Victor Ray talks about whiteness being a credential, right? When whiteness is a credential, then first of all, it creates its own inequalities. And second of all, 
it means that if you're a good, if you're a white teacher and you're committed to this, you don't have to improve, right? It actually hamstrings the white teachers too. So like it makes things harder for people who aren't white and it makes, and there's, there's no incentive to improve if you're a white teacher because you're already a native speaker. Why? why? Why would I put effort in if I don't have to? The people who choose to put the effort in will become great teachers and, and, and that's fine. You know, that's not, it's not their fault that that exists, but it's, uh, it's the fault of the industry that we use that as such a credential. And the thing is places know not to put that in the ads anymore, but they just do it in a different way. They end up with the same thing, right? They just use a different word for that. They'll just, they'll use fluency, but then they'll have really, really high standards of the fluency to the point where no one can pass it unless they're, you know, born into the language. So, you know, it's things like that. I think so. I think people would expect me to have said, you know, hiring people based on their nativeness is, is, is deceit. It's not in the sense that these people are within the label that we have created. Right. It's the fact that the label exists in the first place. The second thing is about the precarity that we talked about. Right. The fact that the teachers are so like the first of the symptoms is being very critical of the English as, as foreign language sub industry. Right. Which I was part of, which you're part of. Right. Um, but the second thing flips it around and is supportive of the teachers who are teaching overseas and in a lot of places, because a lot of the time they can't, you know, keep a roof over their heads if they challenge any of these issues, right? If I'm a white teacher and I move to, to Japan and I really want to change this about the industry, well, they're just gonna fire me <laughs> or they'll revoke my visa and now I can't fight anything. So uh, they keep people separated on purpose. I mean, the people are working against this, right? But that that's one of the big issues and um, this is not just, again, it's not just a language teacher problem. It's a lot of industries like this. But it's been true of language teaching longer than it's true, been true of a lot of other industries. Because it's always been an itinerant thing. People are traveling around and so forth. And you can't just travel around for fun like that. You need visas and passports and stuff. And so there's, gonna, there's always been a bunch of regulations and stigmatizations. Another thing is our tendon. When I think the book really starts cooking and gets a lot funnier, which it's not a comedy book, but I, I have a sense of humor when I write. And the first third of the book, I have little jokes here and there, but I'm really telling a lot of history to set things up. And then in the symptoms part, when I really start cooking is in the third chapter of the symptoms, when I start talking about acronyms, because um, the third symptom of antisocial personality disorder is like impulsivity, right? N not being able to control your impulses. And I think that the way that the field will change an acronym because something happens, but not actually change what they're doing shows how unprepared they are to deal with these issues because they'll say, huh, you know, it's not the right thing to say ESL. What about ELL? Right. And they'll say, well, maybe that's not, that's not very nice because they might know a lot of languages. What about MLL? And I'm like, uh, okay, I guess that's better. But if you're treating people the same way, then I don't think they really, they don't care what letters you use around them as long as you don't treat them any different, right? You could call someone an ESL student, but if you treated them like everybody else, then I guess it probably doesn't matter that much. I'm not saying we should do that, but like it's much less important than changing the ideologies. And also the acronyms are a mask for things, right? They're just allowing people to, to performatively show as though they're doing something. And they're not doing anything. So, you know, that's uh, 
it's a problem. <laughs> oh, Dr. Jira, I feel like you're talking at me, meaning or and to me, but I feel like, oh man, I'm doing all these things as well. Uh, definitely, definitely very poignant about the changing of labels, but not changing practice and mindsets around students and instruction, right? So or we're going to call them MLLs, but we're not really going to actually support their heritage language instruction. It's going to be English only instruction. Like, hmm, interesting. Let's actually, you talked a lot about teaching and teachers. Actually, you talked a lot about teachers. Can we talk about what are the symptoms then? What's the impact of this disorder on students? You know, there's a chapter in there called Bad at English. And, um, I telling telling a story there about when I was running that community language program. The people in that program were, it was a nonprofit that had a Head Start program. And for people who are listening and don't know what that is, it's a big program in the United States that gives low-income students a better chance at preschool, right? So this has nothing to do with the language teaching, but the point is half of the students were mothers of the preschool, right? And those mothers were usually from Mexico, Dominican Republic. Etc. The other half of my students, and there were some exceptions to this, right? But the other half of my students were women, exclusively women from Japan, China, Korea, Taiwan, right? And then you come to find out that the these women are all trailing spouses, right? For people who don't know, that means their husbands got a job, they came because they either had a kid with them or they just not going to leave their husband and they can't work because of the visa situation. These people were usually doing stuff at home. Some of them were not, but some of them were. And now they got nothing to do. So then I guess I'll go to English class. All this is to say, and I'm spoke focusing specifically on the East Asian students, and I'm not saying that the other students don't matter, but for the story I'm telling, they would come to, they email me or they'd call me to sign up for the class and, you know, they'd say, I'm a beginner or I'm bad at English, right? First of all, if you can tell me you're bad at English, you're not bad at English, <laughs> right? But whatever. Second, though, like, I thought I need to increase these students' confidence in the language, right? And I did. But then they realized that, like, although that's certainly not a bad thing, um, Contextually, you're only really helping them in your space. So what it meant was I created a very comfortable space for them to express themselves. And that was good. And I felt good about myself. But as soon as they walked out the door, the people didn't care. So what it means, it's two things. It makes people, what does it mean for students? It makes students think that there's something wrong with them, the way they communicate, something wrong, but something wrong with them innately, right? Because... If I can understand them, I don't have any special skill. Yeah, I have experience understanding different accents, but it's not like a genius skill to understand what they're saying. Then they go to some other place and they think the problem is them. I remember my students telling me they'd leave my class and they try to go across the street to the, to the like Chipotle and order something and people would get mad at them because they took too long, right? Um, and this is New York. There's a lot of people from a lot of countries here. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it's, uh, and I can imagine what that's like in other places that are not New York, right? So it, 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 it both, it makes, it, it, it harms their, their feelings about themselves. It, uh, and it also makes things harder for them to navigate the world because 
If you don't think that you can communicate well, it makes you less confident. And it also justifies when people do whatever they want to do to you out in the world because, well, this person doesn't understand me, so I can treat them like a child. And we can go all the way back to colonization, slavery, and all of that to think about the fact that people who could not speak the dominant language were always thought of as children. So these people are thought of as like mentally children, right? Um, There's nothing wrong with being a child, but you know what I mean. Uh, and you know, it's demeaning, it's insulting. And, uh, even thinking, taking the oppression out of it, it's also just like, it's just bad for their ability to get anywhere. Oh, this is troubling (laughs) on so many levels. Let's end the podcast with this. There's only five more minutes. So we'll, we'll talk about the treatment, but we're going to wrap it in this question. It's called traffic light teaching. What can we do in terms of treatment? What can we red light stop doing, green light start doing, yellow light continue doing in terms of working with students who are BIPOC? There's a couple of things that we just need to stop. I don't know who can stop this, but that everyone needs to pound their feet about is like, there's some simple, there's some stuff that can be improved, which I'll get to. And there's some stuff that we just need to, more people need to do. And then there's some things that we just need to throw out, like accent reduction is just out, just get rid of it, right? There, this is not to say that, for example, when an actor learns a role, they can't do dialect coaching, but an actor is not being told there's something wrong with the way that they talk, right? They're trying to learn to communicate like other people. If it was actually framed as dialect coaching, right? It is not necessarily a useless skill to attain an additional accent, right? That's probably kind of cool, but it's not framed that way. So the accent reduction industry is too rotten for us to say, well, we'll just make it better, right? If they wanted to, if the dialect coaches who teach actors want to take over that, then that would be fine because they're not pri. Dialect coaches don't say this is the good accent, this is the bad accent. They say the role is Russian, you need to learn Russian. Right, right. You know, it's not like this is bad. Um, so that's like things like that. Anything that's just inherently pushing people down, it's got to go. Um, what we need to to keep at is that there are a lot of sort of unionization, collectivization efforts around. We need to find each other, the people who care about this, because we're all out there. That's the thing. The book wouldn't have existed if they didn't think people wanted to read it. Right. There's a lot of people out there who um, who want to do things differently. We don't, th- th- there's no excuse now for not finding people with the internet the way it is. Right? You find people, you know, whether that means through uh, virtual conferences, which are still a thing because people around the world want to go to stuff uh, or through listservs or any, you know, even if you want to use social media or anyways, like there's a way to find people like this, but you also have to make a point of doing it, right? You join a group and you read stuff. You don't actually reach out to anybody you're not really doing anything. So like everyone needs to take a step because a lot of the, the ways that I learned a lot of this stuff was things like I went to a conference and I met someone and then I emailed them. <laughs> like you actually have to talk to the people. Like I've, I've collaborated with Vijay Ramjitan several times because I met him in Toronto and then I emailed him. <laughs> so like you got to do it. And I understand that some people might ignore you, but most people are usually pretty open to talking. The only time that they don't respond is if they're just busy. But like, okay, so then you talk to the next person. And then as far as what we need to really start doing, I wrote this book in a particular style on purpose because so many academic books are inaccessible. 
right? In a lot of ways, this is still an academic book. Like, I, I, like I want, I can pretend that like I'm not really like that. But then, like, I give it to people who aren't academics, and it's taking up a long time to read. I'm like, all right, fine, but because <laughs> it's it's still an academic book, right? But the style, the more I don't want to say informal but the fact that I'm trying to make it so that people could understand it outside of the field because I'm not writing for academics academics should read it and I think they'd find it valuable but I would much rather the the random k-12 ESL teacher read it and get something from it because they're not necessarily reading all of this research and there's nothing wrong with they're just busy but like unless you're an academic you're probably not reading all these journal articles no one reads journal articles so like I wanted to take the journal articles bring them into where they might make sense in a larger story. But I think more of us need to try to write accessible things, whether it's blog posts, books, articles, whatever, that people can read, like really read, and also literally can read because they're not behind paywalls. Obviously, it's a book, so you have to pay for it, but it also doesn't cost $90. Like I told them, they asked me how much to sell it for, and I said $25, and it costs $25. Um you know, and it's not free, but it's a lot cheaper than most academic books. And I just think the more ideas that those of us who care about this get out there, we can overwhelm the stodgy ideas that are like, they're still talking about the word gap. They're still talking about what's what's wrong with all of us. They're still talking about, you know, how poorly we do on tests, right? They're still comparing us to everybody else and showing we're lacking and focusing on how to fix that when realizing that they themselves are the problem. Basically, your message is we need to stop finger pointing and work with students and also on our perception. Finger pointing, you think of a person, right? But like the system is set up to two point systematic fingers at people, right? Because even when I, whenever you say something, not you, but whenever a person says something, people understandably take it as a person doing something. But like, no, like this, the way that the system is set up and the hierarchies inherently points fingers at groups of people is what I'm trying to say. It's, this is a hard, pill to swallow again metaphorically because like your book is structured in, as a medical book right like the disorder the symptom the treatment but yet if we don't take this medicine the patient suffers right and so i am i'm swallowing this pill because i understand that there are things that i do and have done such as english only classes that has perpetrated and have have continued this system of oppression. And it's sadly, we say sometimes we want to serve BIPOC students, but our systems and our approaches uh, don't uh, align with what we say. And so thank you for helping us really stop and think about like, wait, are, are we really saying this? And are, we, is our, are our actions really aligned to that? So Dr. Gerald, thank you for really this powerful, an enlightening conversation, high energy, and taking a deep breath because it was a, it's what we needed to hear. Dr. Jarrow, thank you again. Thank you. I hope people get something out of it. I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field 
I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. Now onto our recap. Yes, this conversation might have been difficult to hear. That's because it's not fun to reflect on how teaching practices might be a symptom of racism. When I step back and listen to this podcast again, the central message that we have to tackle in our practice is, are we instructing students from a belief that they are capable of meeting grade level expectations? I know that if you're still listening to this podcast at this point, you are one of those teachers who have an undying belief in your students. Our call is to carry that belief in our interactions with colleagues so that they too instruct MLs with the same conviction. We have to lend our belief to colleagues until their belief takes root. This is our real job during collaboration, to be advocates for MLs. Thank you for listening. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. 